0: Be in mark chapter 10 mark is towards the back of the bible second book of the new testament it is a biography about jesus's time on earth we're going to be mark chapter 10 verse 7 mark chapter 10 verse 7 as you finishing up turning there would you bow with me would you pray with me over this time father Father, would you please send your Holy Spirit to each heart in this place to do work to prepare for us to hear the word. Father, we can't see what's going on in every heart in this place. But Father, we know that you can. And Father, we know our own nature and we know what the word says and Father there are there are those among us here who are not believers we might not be able to name them but they're here and Father with such a clear passage today with such a clear gospel call today Father we ask that if, there's, if there are those here who are not saved if there are those here who are going to spend eternity in hell Father, would you prepare their heart? Would you call them? Would you sweetly convict them of sin? Would you open their eyes to Jesus? And Father, for those who are saved, Father, we ask that you open our eyes to Jesus, that we may see him more clearly than ever before, that we may rejoice in who he is, that we may bask in the grace that we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen, amen. All right, Mark chapter 10, Um, I remember a friend I worked with about 10 or 12 years ago, forgive me, I'm going to mess with this thing up here, 10 to 12 years ago, oh, Ah, close enough. If you're looking for organized religion, you better go somewhere else. Um. I remember a friend I worked with 12 years ago. uh, We worked closely, really liked the guy. Um, I began to share uh, our faith with him. And he he was an atheist. Atheist. Young guy. um, And in the middle of our conversation, amongst our many conversations that we had, um, he revealed to me his deepest, darkest fear. And that fear was death. His fear was death. He said he would... He would lay awake at night worrying about death. And that stuck with me. And the more atheists I encounter, and the more I interact with, really just people out and about, and um, that's a pretty common thing. I remember watching Larry King in one of his, uh, on TV, one of his shows. And Larry King, famously an atheist, just passed away. And he said, the only thing that he fears is death. And I think we can understand that. We can understand why. Death ushers us into eternity. There is a. There's, not coming, there's no coming back when we experience death, it is forever. It is forever. And so the question that we are going to encounter today and the answer to that question, the question we're going to talk about today is the most important question that any of us could ever ask. The question is, what must we do to inherit eternal It could be be asked this way, what must we do to take care of death? It could be this way, what is the answer to death? That great universal thing that we will all encounter. What's the answer? What's the answer? Let's read together. Let's try to. Let's try to get underneath this question. Let's see where this question is coming from. Let's take a look at a young man who I can't help but think is very much like my young friend, afraid of death. Let's read this together. This is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Let's read about this fear. Let's read about this question. Verse 17 goes like this. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. How encouraging is this? And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Rich people get everything they want. What do you mean? They're amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter, good old Peter, Peter began to say to him, But many who are first will be last. And the last first. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And let's get the picture in our mind of what this guy is doing. Jesus is walking down the road. Probably crowds following him. You know, they had the, he had the twelve disciples... And he had other disciples that were just following him in his sphere of influence, wanting to follow Jesus. And then they had the crowds. And so we can imagine that the crowd was following. He had a lot of people around him. And all of a sudden, this young man, this wealthy man, whether or not Jesus was passing by his big estate, his big villa, we don't know or if he's been following Jesus for a while, trying to talk to him, runs up to Jesus. Throws himself down on the street. My mind's eye sees it as he puts himself in Jesus' way so that Jesus won't go around him. He throws himself in front of Jesus, kneels and says, Good teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? Great question. There's a lot we love about this question and how he's asking it. There's a lot of good things to admire about the way he's going about this. He's asking the most important question any of us could ever ask. Larry King has passed away. He is dead and he is buried. All the other questions in his life matter not. It still matters this question How do we inherit eternal life? We are fools not to bother with this question. This is a good question. We also like, that says he's running to Jesus he is running for an answer to this question that's a good thing that's a good thing because this question is so important it is it is a burning question it is an urgent question that man knows he's not going to wait till Jesus passes by some other time in six months he's got to know now because he might enter eternity tomorrow I know we hear it so often that it can be trite. If you've been in church long enough, you've heard this a million times. But we could die on the way home today. This question is urgent. We are fools to not seek it urgently. That's good. Another good thing is he is, a- he is asking the right person. He's asking the right person. This guy's a lot like us. He's heard about Jesus. He's probably not seen the miracles. He's probably arriving for the first time, but you know what he's heard? You know what he's heard from lots of people? You know what everybody's talking about? Jesus is a man who has raised the dead to life. He's done that before. And He's going to do it again. He's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. He's going to call out, Lazarus! come out he's going to do that shortly and everybody says everybody in the country heard about this amazing it's like the whole world was talking about jesus why because he raises the dead he seems to have an answer to this question that is urgent and is all important And then, of course, Jesus is going to die Himself. We're going to say, let's see if He really has the answer to our greatest problem, our greatest question. Does Jesus really have the answer to death? And He raises from the dead. That's not just a rumor. 500 people see Him. They're willing to tell you about it. And the religious leaders are befuddled. They don't know what to do because this man seems to have really raised from the dead. They don't know what to do. They don't have a body to pull out from the grave and show everybody, no, he's dead. The body's gone because he raised from the dead. This man, Jesus, is the right man to ask. And he kneels. That's what you got to do. He kneels. He's not coming to Jesus. says, hey, let's pontificate about eternity and let's go back and forth. I'm not, no, he kneels and he says, I need to hear from you. I don't have the answer. I need to hear from you. It's good. It's the right thing. There's a couple things that, that are wrong about the way he asks this question and the way Jesus and him interact here. There's a few things that he has off. Now as believers, as someone who's been in church, and if you've been in this church long enough, I hope this is clear to you, we are saved by grace through faith alone. The answer to death has nothing to do with our righteousness or the things that We do. We inherit eternal life by the work of Christ, by the grace of God. And so when he comes and he asks, What must I do? our radar needs to be going up, right? Boop, boop. Because we know what he means. And there's a right way to ask the question like that. But is he asking, I receive eternal life by the things that I do, by my righteousness, or by my actions? Is that what he's asking? And then he asks Jesus, he comes to Jesus and he says this. He says, good teacher. Good teacher. And listen to how Jesus responds to that. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Jesus is God. We know that. But the young man didn't know that. Do you see that you see the problem here? So Jesus is good. Jesus is not saying, "I'm not good. He is good. He's saying, "Why do you call me good?" Jesus thinks he, or the young man thinks Jesus is just a man like him. And so he comes to, to Jesus and he says, "Good teacher, as if men can be good." And we could understand why he's confused about these things. He lives in a culture not totally unlike ours. We, in our culture, believe that we can be good people. Especially when he's heard about all these things Jesus has done, he assumes, well, this man must be truly good to be able to do things that he does. And he's right, Jesus is good, but he's right for the wrong reasons. And so the first thing that we must do when we ask this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is we must sweep away the dirt from the diamond. We must realize that we cannot rely on our goodness to fix our death problem. If we believe we can earn eternal life by being good, we will never be there. Only good, only God is good. No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. If you are looking for eternal life with your goodness, you are at a dead end. But this man doesn't understand that. He doesn't comprehend how sinful his heart really is. He doesn't comprehend how lost all of us truly are. What he believes is a, a little elbow grease, and we could be good people. With a bit of refinement, we can be good, upstanding citizens of the kingdom of God. He might believe, like we tend to do I'm just a little rough around the edges, but I really have a heart of gold. I'm really a good guy deep down. Maybe I just need to get in church a bit more and surely I will be good enough for eternal life. And Jesus cuts that snake off at the head. No one is good but God alone. And Jesus' message is reflected all throughout Scripture. You've heard it over and over and over again from this stage. No one is good, Romans 3. Can't, Can't get more clear than that. Romans 3 says no one is good. Psalm 51, David tells us, "I was sinful in my mother's womb. Sin goes way deep down." Psalm 143, "No one living is righteous before God." And Micah 7, I love this one. "There is no one upright on the earth. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. Little prickly things. Little annoying prickly things. We think we're these grand oak trees. He says, no, you're just that little prickly thing down on the ground. No, not good for anything. In Ephesians 2, we talk about it often. Of course, Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins. And so Jesus, so wise and so, so patient he hears this. He knows, he knows what's going on in this man's heart. That this man thinks that we can achieve goodness to earn eternal life. And so what does Jesus do? He points him to the great example for why we are not good enough. He points him to the Ten Commandments. He says, you, you know. You're asking me. You're down on your knees. You think that I'm good. You know what it takes to earn eternal life. Go to the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Do these things perfectly and you will have eternal life. Isn't that good? If we are perfect from womb to tomb, we will have eternal life. God is just. If we live the perfect, godly life from beginning to end, We have eternal life. But what's the problem? What's the problem? None of us can do it. And Jesus is going to dive into that in the Sermon of the Mount. He's going to say, you've heard it said do not murder. I tell you, if you've ever called anyone a fool, you are a murderer. I'm a murderer. He says, I tell you the truth, you've heard it said do not commit adultery. I tell you the truth, if you ever lusted, you are an adulterer. I'm an adulterer. So Jesus is spelling out the Ten Commandments. He's saying, you know what it said. You you know what the Scripture says. You know what the Ten Commandments said. Do all these things. But the man is so deep down, entrenched in his self-righteousness, he says, teacher, I have done all these things from my youth. Has he? Of course not. Of course not. Of course he hasn't. But see, he's so close. He's so close. Of course he hasn't. You know how we know he hasn't? Well, he's one of us. But you know how else we know? He's still there asking the question. If he was truly perfect, and he has truly kept the Ten Commandments his entire life, and if he still believed that you could you could be good enough for eternal life, he wouldn't be there asking the question. The Ten Commandments have not given him eternal life and he knows it. That's why he's asking the question still. And he's so, he's so close. That's why this passage is so tragic. He's so close because he has, he has gotten to the end of the Ten Commandments. The, the, good, the good law of God the, it is fulfilled in Jesus' He has gotten so close. We know in Romans 7, Paul tells us clearly, we know what the real purpose of the Ten Commandments is. Do you know the real purpose of the Ten Commandments? It's not to make sure you're a good person. It's not to clean you up. It's not just to have a good society. The purpose, the foundation, the number one reason God gives us the Ten Commandments, Paul says, is the Ten Commandments teach us that we are sinners. And so the purpose of the Ten Commandments is that yes, we try to live upright, and they're good, and they're good things. But what they're designed to do is to show us that we're adulterers, and we're murderers, and we're liars, and we're swindlers. This man has rode his goodness, his obedience to the law, his self righteousness, as far he's rode him as far as they will take him. And he is still empty. He is so close. He's where Paul is. That Romans 7 passage that teaches us the Ten Commandments. The purpose of them is to tell us we need Jesus. That we can't do it on our own. The purpose. And Paul ends that. he, 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 he It's almost like Paul is putting words in this young man's mouth. He ends that passage like this. He said, I've rode the Ten Commandments to the end and I'm still empty. And he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death that cannot live up to the Ten Commandments. Oh, wretched man that I am I can't do it and then Paul says "And thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ we are righteous by faith this man is so close you've seen it this young man we want to take him we want to shake him we want to say you you've seen it you've seen that the Ten Commandments can't get you there and so Jesus saw him, and he loved him, and he said, follow me. The man has drunk deep in the well of self-righteousness, and he has found nothing but poison. He has seen that we cannot earn it. And so, in God's great mercy and grace, He has sent Jesus. Standing right in front of this man. Jesus, standing right in front of this man. Jesus lives the perfect life that we cannot live. Totally obedient to the Ten Commandments and everything else. Totally perfect in life. He dies the death that we deserve for our sinfulness, for breaking the laws of God. He, he, he takes the punishment that we deserve on His own back, and He rises again, from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell for all who follow Him. The Bible says now there is righteousness before God that is apart from the law. And that righteousness is by faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. And so this is before Him. This man is kneeling seeing Jesus and Jesus tells him the Gospel. Follow me. But of course, he doesn't just say that, does he? So here's the thing about following Jesus. Here's the thing about following Jesus. We don't follow Jesus like we follow someone on Twitter or Facebook. You see, the Twitter or Facebook following is, I can follow you, and 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 I can follow you. I can follow you if I don't like you. I can follow you if I've never met you. That's not like following Jesus. Following Jesus is Exclusive. Following Jesus means you do not follow anyone else or anything else. Following Jesus is exclusive. Following Jesus is comprehensive. Following Jesus is a lifelong, all-encompassing journey with Jesus. Following Jesus is not like when my wife follows me on a hike. We'll wake up. At, we'll wake up early, and we'll get our hiking stuff on and she'll follow me and then we'll get home and we'll go and do our own thing and then then we're done. It's not how we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus like when my wife followed me to California for grad school. Packed up everything that we owned. Said goodbye to everyone we knew. And she followed me. It's exclusive Is comprehensive. We can't follow Him halfway. We can't follow Jesus. And then I'll follow you from 9 to 5, Jesus, but then my evenings I'm going to follow this person over here or this thing over here, and then I'll be back and I'll see you in the morning. No, it is following Jesus with everything. Paul tells us this. In Romans, he says, you, you know you're saved, When you call Jesus Lord. What he meant by that is, you call Jesus Lord, and what that means is, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. When I say that, when I tell people that, I'm telling them, Caesar is not my Lord. Exclusive. Can't hedge your bets. Following Jesus is following your King into battle. following your commander up and out of the trench towards the enemy. It's like following your jump jump instructor out of the airplane when you skydive. My whole life, I've never done it. I'm never going to do it. But I can imagine that feels like, dude, my whole life is in your hands. You better know what you're doing. That's what following Jesus is like. And so what Jesus has done is he, he, he sees this, this man. I mean, it seems genuine. Jesus loves this man. He, he, in front of all these people, this rich man kneels in front of this rabbi. Jesus cuts him to the quick. He cuts him down. He says, he says you can't earn it. Look, you're, you're not. No one is good. Get that out of your head. And then he sees this man and he presents the gospel to him. This way, follow me. But he doesn't just say that, does he? He says, Jesus sees this man. He sees his heart. He knows what this man is following. He knows where this man's heart truly is. So he says, you lack one thing. How patient is Jesus? He doesn't say... Oh, really? You've obeyed all the Ten Commandments? Well, let me tell you, when you were 12, I saw you, and I know what you said, I know what you did. Yeah, really? Oh, really? When you were, when you were 31 and you stole stuff from this poor family that was renting one of your places, I saw you, really? He doesn't say that. He says, oh, okay. Place came, okay. You, you lack one thing. Sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And come follow. This man has been following his wealth. This man is following his wealth into battle. He was following his money out the door of the plane. He was following his money out of the trench and towards the enemy. He was following his money to hell. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is Jesus comes and says, repent and believe the good news. Repentance is... Selling everything you have and following Jesus. Now, it's not literal, though for some of us it might be. What this means is we sell everything we have. We sell our pride and follow Jesus. We sell our lust and follow Jesus. We sell our power and follow Jesus. We sell our desires, and our preferences, and we follow Jesus. We sell our comfort and we follow Jesus. This is considered the saddest verse in all of Scripture. And there's some sad verses. This is the saddest one. Disheartened, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It could have easily, just as easily said, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great lust. Or he had great pride or he had great power or he had great influence or he had great popularity or he had great comfort put your sin in there and it works that's the saddest verse in all scripture and think about it jesus calls him to follow him he could be the next he could be the 13th disciple you ever thought about that who knows Who knows what could have been with this man? He could have been a leader. Maybe he still was. Who knows? He could have been a leader in the church. Huh. And so following Jesus, following Jesus may cost you everything you own and everyone you know. But it will be worth it. That's the Gospel. And see, we've done a really poor job. I grew up in the church, went to church camp. We've done a really poor job of explaining this side of the gospel. Because that's not going to get you more customers. It's not, you're not going to put that on your commercial. right? McDonald's doesn't say, come eat our hamburger and increase your chance of a heart attack. right? I mean, that's just not good marketing. I've been at church camp. I've been at church camps. I can't tell you how many church camps I've gone. And everyone in the building re-gives their life to Christ. Somebody stands up and music plays a certain way and they say, okay, raise your hand if you don't want to go to hell. And they raise their hand and then all of a sudden we got we had 150 salvations at church camp and if you grew up in church, you've been to church camps, you know exactly what I'm saying. The real gospel is this. You can't earn it. You're dead in your sins and your transgressions. But Christ saw you and he loved you. And you got one thing. Sell everything. Be willing to sell all. And follow him. Church camp kids, listen, and what this might mean is everyone in your school might hate you. And now we think, oh, teenagers, yeah, we get that. Everyone at your workplace might hate you. Jesus might call you to sell everything. IMB missionaries wrote a book called The Insanity of God that became kind of a documentary as well. I'd say go watch it. Go see it. It's amazing. They asked asked this question, how is Jesus really enough for these missionaries that lose everything? Jesus might call you, you elder of a church in Soviet Russia, he might call you to lose a decade of your family life when they throw you into prison for the gospel. When when kids come to me and for baptism VBS we we kind of have we've we've had this strategy right VBS can be one of those church camp church camp stuff where raise your hand and everybody say these words and then we could be saved and who knows and all these things and not saying that you can't be saved in that manner but you could see why how little kids could be easily emotionally manipulated and almost by accident right you could see that and so what we do is we if anybody Professes that, they come and they meet with me, and I try my very best to explain the gospel and have them say it back. And of course, they're kids, and so you, you gotta, it, it's just difficult. You could see how difficult, but one of the questions that we ask is this What do you love most in life? And usually, their answer is like video games or you know, Barbie dolls or something. You say, Well, this is what it means to follow Jesus. If, if Jesus tells you to give up video games, what must you do? I must give up video games. And for us adults, it's the same thing. If Jesus comes to me tomorrow and he says, Jordan, I call you to leave your family behind and go to North Korea, and you will never see them on this side of eternity. Following Jesus is doing that. To follow Jesus is to be willing at every moment to see everything in your life slip over the horizon as you continue to follow Jesus. It's my young Cambodian friend that I speak of often whose family disowned him for following Jesus. You might lose your family. It's our Chinese brothers and sisters who have lost churches and property and years of their life being thrown in prison or being confiscated for the good of the gospel. It's happening right now. That's following Jesus. Abraham Kepper says it this way There is not a square inch in all the world in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine And here's here's the grace and mercy of God. Now listen, if, it, if we just said that, that would be half the story, right? Follow Jesus, you might lose everything, but that's half the story. This is what Jesus says. you see how he ends it? He says, if you've given up fathers and mothers and children and land and all these things, if you've given up, you will receive it a hundred times greater we're not just people who want to be miserable. and We're not just people who, who want to live Spartan lives just for the sake of living Spartan lives. We don't whip ourselves with whips just to feel pain. We, we do these things because Jesus is valuable and Jesus has promised whatever we lose for the gospel, He will pay back a hundredfold. And some of it is now. My, little, my Cambodian brother who lost his family for the gospel has found a hundred times greater family in his church. And it's comfy American Christians, we go, well, oh, church people. I know church people. That... He has found it. hundred times greater. Jesus says, you follow me, you give up things, everything's going to flip over. He said, the first will be last, the last will be first. What is he saying? He's saying, you will see the world differently. You will see that what you gave up wasn't worth nearly what you have now in Christ. He throws this in. Just in case we want to get on the prosperity gospel bandwagon and say, when you follow Jesus, yeah, you're gonna lose all this, but he's gonna give you a hundred times whatever it's gonna be great, comfy life. He throws this in. He says, Whatever you give, you're gonna get a hundred times. Fathers, or not fathers, mothers, because he's the father, you're not gaining fathers, fathers, mother, children, lands, persecution, eternal life. Like that Sesame Street stuff. You remember this song? They'd have a cookie, a cookie, a piece of pizza, and a cookie. And they'd sing, one of these things is not like right. He goes through all these things and he says, persecution. You can get persecution a hundredfold. How's that work? Well, when you follow Jesus, when you see him as valuable, you're going to see giving up everything for Jesus is tremendous. You love it. You can't believe that he has allowed you the honor of suffering for the sake of the Gospel. You suffer for the sake of the Gospel. You, he, he considers you to be in the line of Peter and Paul and these men who suffered for the sake of the Gospel. Everything will be different. You'll see everything in your life different. You'll see a hundredfold blessings when you give up for the gospel, including persecution. You're going to see it like this Peter comes after he established the church. Jesus came, he died, rose again, established Peter. Peter has the Holy Spirit. Peter gets beat to a pulp for the gospel and acts as he goes off and he rejoices that he was found worthy to suffer for Christ. That's for us. That's a life that truly matters for eternity. But here's here's the rub. And this is where this is where Jesus is quick to make sure. You know, Peter says, well, we've we've done, we've given up everything. And we have the temptation to believe that, yeah, I'm not saved by my works, but, man, maybe I'm saved by, I just have a bigger heart for God, or I'm just more loving, or there's something about me that, that I was able to do to follow Jesus where other people weren't. I'm great. Lest we think there's something in us that has propelled us to follow Jesus. Mark is really clear to show us when Jesus comes to every single one of us and he says, hey, give everything up and follow me and you'll have eternal life. In our own power and our own sinfulness, every single one of us, our answer to him will be no. We are not just to be sad for that man, we are to see ourselves as that man. No one seeks God. No one in our own power, and our own sinfulness, no one considers Christ and eternal life valuable enough to give up everything. Listen to Jesus' words. You know, we see, we see the man. Jesus says, you can't be good enough. Okay, we put, we put that in. Then Jesus lays it out. Here, do this, and you'll receive eternal life. And the man says, no. And then Jesus goes off in this paragraph, and he shows us. He says things like this. You know, we focus on the, the rich man, and that's a big part of it. Rich people have unique barriers for the gospel. They've got more to give up. So that's part of it. But Jesus does it. it's not just about rich people. He says, he says, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, period. Why? How difficult is it? We're not talking about the righteousness part. We're talking about he gave him the option and he said, no. How difficult is it for us to, to be citizens of the kingdom of God because we will be given the same choice in our own symbolism. We will say, No. I don't want it. He says, with man, it is impossible. He says this it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. And again, it's not just about rich people, it could be everybody. How impossible is it? It's like it is more probable. It's more probable. For a camel, which was the biggest animal in Israel, to fit through a needle, the smallest hole in Israel, it's more possible for the laws of physics to be broken so that that can happen. It's It's easier for that to happen than for me and my sinfulness to want Jesus. It is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom Because in our sinfulness, we will never pay the cost. We will all refuse to abandon everything and everyone. We do not find Jesus worth it. And is there a greater treason than that? Christian, you weren't a sinner who in your own wisdom or spiritual insight or open-mindedness decided Christ was worth everything. Something else had to happen. And we see that with the disciples Jesus tells them this. He says, look, see what just happened? It's impossible for men to value me enough to give up everything as they must for eternal life. And the disciples are they are at their wits' end. What do you mean, Jesus? Then who in the world can be saved? It's impossible. And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You see, the grace and mercy of God in saving sinners goes down and down and down and deep and deep and deep to our very hearts and our very attitudes. He had to raise us from The dead, not just polish us off a little bit, not just wash us up. He had to raise us from the dead. We did not even want Him. Without God's direct intervention from the very beginning, it is impossible for a man or woman to find Jesus valuable enough to pay the cost of following Him. And so, in God's grace, He sends the Holy Spirit beginning, while you were still not wanting Jesus. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit's job is to come and to call. Come on. You've been in your your self-righteousness. You've been in your pride. You've been miserable. Come. And Scripture says it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of sin. You really blew it back there. See these 10 commandments? You sure you're a good person? You sure that God will let you in based on your goodness? And we see the Holy Spirit pulling us, calling us. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit is to raise us spiritually from the dead. And we see the work of the Holy Spirit is to call us and bring us and to give us new birth and new life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, to allow us to call Jesus Lord. So even in the following, we see the fingerprints of the grace and mercy of God. So truly, no truer words have ever been spoken. None of us can ever say we did it. It's all the grace and mercy of God. And that good news. And that good news. So this is what it looks like. Very real. So we must take from this that my salvation From beginning to end is total gift and mercy from God. From beginning to end. I could take no credit in it. And I love how we see this in the book of Ezekiel. We're going to end right here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Here's our salvation. Listen to the good grace of God in this. Ezekiel says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there, was a very, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. These people were deader than a doornail. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? No! No! They're dead. They're dead in their sins and their transgressions. These bones cannot live. And I answered him, Oh Lord God, You know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, O, oh, O, oh, O, oh, O oh, dry bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. our salvation. That is our God. That is the grace of God that he came across you, sinner as you were, dead as dry bones. And you are not open to Jesus. And you are not attracted to Jesus on your own. But he, in the work of the Holy Spirit, called you to life. What a gracious God we serve. So Christian, as we sing this song together, Christian, I challenge you. Praise the grace of your God that has saved you from the beginning. Non-believer. Non-believer. Let's don't play games with God. Are you following Jesus? What has He called you to lay down, non-believer? Where are you in this? Is do you feel God calling you, non-believer? Do you feel the sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit of your sins, non-believer? Do you see? Do you begin to see Jesus as valuable? Is God opening your eyes to? Where are you there? And our prayer for you, non-believer, is that you repent and. Follow Jesus.